You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is one of my dear friends, Loren Rochelle, co-founder and CEO of Not Ordinary Media. Loren, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. Of course. So excited we finally get to do this. Let's start off by kind of understanding how you found your way into the video space. Well, I'll say a little bit by accident, mostly as a straight-up survival. I went into survival mode, and it was a survival tactic, whether I knew at the time that it was intentional or unintentional. But I graduated from fashion school during the recession, right at the height of the recession, and I needed a job and I didn't know what to do. And there was, there was no work. So what was the first job that you found? Well, the first job was as a graphic designer, which I was terrible at. Turns out I'm not a good graphic designer. And I was working at a company that was an architecture firm at the time. It still exists, but it was on the verge of bankruptcy. And so the CEO, who I had fallen in love with, he was like an adoptive father to me. I adored him. He had a conversation with me one day and he's like, look, I, I can't afford to pay you. The business isn't doing well. As much as I love you like my own kid, I just, I mean, I can't pay you. And it was at that moment that I sort of went into survival mode and it was the height of new media. Nobody knew what it was. Everybody was trying to figure it out. And I had over that period of time become really interested in it. So I begged him not to let me go. And I said, I'll help you. I'll do whatever I can to help your business. Just don't let me go. Pay me whatever you can. And he's like, okay, I can afford to pay you $500 a week. And so I went home. Oh, I had, I should mention, I told him I would rebuild his website. I would build his blog, write his content, get him on social media. At the time it wasn't called social media. It was just Twitter. And help him rebuild his network and find him clients and try to help him rebuild his business. And did you know anything about this before you agreed to to do those things? (laughs) No, but I was a recent college grad in survival mode, which is interesting because I don't think that that was unique at the time. There were a lot of recent college grads that sort of felt like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? I need to survive and be an adult and make a living and there was just no, there were no jobs. So I went home and I'm like, well, shit, I don't know how to build a website. I don't know. I was a creative writer, but I didn't really know how to write copy or anything like that. And I just had to, I mean, I sat down for weeks and I read as much content online, like a millennial would about how to do these things. And I taught myself how to build a WordPress website and how to write copy and how to write blogs and how to communicate with people online and build a community. And I got him up going to networking events and meeting people. And he slowly started bringing in our business. I can't take full responsibility for him rebuilding his business, obviously, but he didn't go bankrupt and the company still exists. That was really my first foray into anything remotely digital. I wouldn't have even called it digital at the time. I just sort of fell into an industry that was really small, super niche, Nobody knew how to do it. And I was 
one of few people in LA at the time that understood that space. And so it became, you know, I was a big fish, I guess, in a very small pond. And turns out I was good at it and I loved it. And so I sort of just everything snowballed from there. That really didn't have anything to do with the video, but I used that as a case study to work with other small businesses doing sort of like new media for them, but it was not paying the bills. So I actually shout out to my partner, Maddie. She's amazing. She saw how creative I was and how much I enjoyed helping these other people build their businesses. And she actually told me, pushed me to start my own company making jewelry. And so I started this company with a very cheesy name, but I was 21. So give me a little bit of credit. It was called Lovebirds. And I literally made handmade jewelry, which I didn't enjoy at all. I didn't actually enjoy making the jewelry. What I enjoyed about that business was building the business, doing the marketing, doing the branding, building the website, having biz dev conversations that I didn't know at the time were biz dev conversations about getting my product in stores. And I used that as a case study to get my first real big girl job as a marketing manager at an e-commerce company. Wow. So you've always kind of been an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, yes, but I would have never said that about myself at the time. I was just doing something that I really enjoyed doing. I feel like I am not me specifically, but the whole process of going through that, it was the poster child of somebody that graduated during the recession and had to figure out what they were good at and make a living doing it. I just got lucky and it was something that I also really, really enjoyed doing. I was passionate about. Yeah, got lucky, but also it sounds like had the innate ability to push yourself and work hard and seek those opportunities and then make it happen, right? Teaching yourself everything you needed to to make it work. Well, it's I don't ever take no for an answer. So it's kind of a blessing and a curse, I guess. So you mentioned this first real job at an e-commerce company, going Mm -hmm. from selling jewelry to working in a bigger organization. What was that like? Well, they were actually not a big organization. It was me and the founder. But over this period of time that I started that company, I got really fascinated by startups. And startups were sort of starting to... I mean, they were always around. There's always been startups. But at that time, they there was a decline because there was no money. So when I was introduced to or I met that founder, it was at a time where there were more startups popping up. And at the, it was 2010. So there was a little bit of money being moved around as far as investments. And he had like a small investment and a good idea, although his idea was very early. It was like a drop ship fashion like independent clothing line, dropship e-commerce company, which is a good idea. It was just, it was too early and it didn't end up being successful, but it was just he and myself working out of his house, like a true startup. It might as well have been his garage, but that gave me an opportunity to learn a ton about marketing. And it was a good segue from my fashion degree and doing things in fashion on my own. So I learned a lot. And it was during the time that I was at that company that I discovered video. There were other companies that were popping up that were actually trying to do an element of shoppable video. It wasn't called shoppable video at the time, but there were people that were using video as a way to sell product. I don't know if you remember a company called ShopFlick. Do you remember them? It was interesting, but they were also really early. 
So I don't know how long they were around, but it was companies like that that started getting my attention. And I knew I wanted to leave that company. I saw that the end was near and I wanted to get into video. And so what was the first way that you got into video? I, again, as I do, started stalking a bunch of companies. I found a small video company who at the time I thought was doing video production, but they had amazing creative. And I somehow found the CEO's email address and I emailed him. The company was called Feed Company. And I wrote in the subject line, don't eat this resume. I will feed you. And he called me 10 minutes later. Wow. Yeah. He called me 10 minutes later and he's like, hello. This, I'll never forget this conversation because my throat dropped into my stomach because I was still really young at the time. And I didn't, I mean, I had learned a lot about marketing about the space, but I was still, you know, I was still at the beginning of my career. So to have a CEO of a startup that you admired call you 10 minutes after you send an email was shocking to say the least. Hello, this is Josh Warner, founder and CEO of Feed Company. I'm like, oh, hello. And we had a conversation and we really hit it off. And that started my love affair with video because I met their team. I learned that they actually didn't do anything in the actual creation of the content. They were more of a distribution arm, but I had fallen in love with the team. So I ended up taking the job and the rest is really history. I've been in this space ever since. What was your focus originally at Feed Company? I was handling accounts while we did. I mean, that was also a startup was a very small company. We only had six. There were six employees at the time that I was there and they maxed out at eight. So we did a lot of different things, but primarily I was handling accounts and strategy. And how has the video space evolved since your early time at Feed Company and then later Giant Media and other kind of video centric startups to what you're doing today? That is an interesting question. It's evolved a lot. When we were at Feed Company, it was the wild, wild west. I mean, that continues to be the case. If you ask people now, they'd still say, well, video distribution is the wild, wild west. But I mean, it was really the things that happened in the video space then I would call now the shady underbelly of video distribution. But at the time, it was a very unsophisticated industry and nobody cared. They just wanted all they knew is that these methods got viewership. Nobody knew where the views were coming from and nobody cared. I mean, even our own, the own company that I was with, I'm not even sure the founder knew where the views were coming from. So it was just a very different space. It was a lot of arbitrage and there was no data. It was really inexpensive traffic. It was probably coming from international markets. We don't, who knows, to now, which is, I mean, it's completely different. There's so much, the viewers and where the traffic is coming from is under so much scrutiny. And now data is such a big piece of this because it's so, there's such a saturation of video that it needs to be on point. Data is a huge piece of it. So there's much more transparency now and then yeah. premium inventory and a focus on giving advertisers something that maps to you know what they're trying to achieve with the campaign. Yeah, now we're more focused on who is this exact viewer? Where do they live? What are their interests? How old are they? What are they, I mean, behaviorally, what are they in the market for? There's a lot of cookie data. None of that existed 
when I started my career. I didn't know what a cookie was. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure the advertisers that were buying the media at the time weren't concerned with it either. So taking your collective experience over the years working in online video, you know, I guess you were inspired at some point to launch NAM. So what was that original inspiration and what was the vision for the business? Well, it was really, I mean, if you ask me on different days, I'll tell you something different. But generally speaking, it was sort of twofold. By the time I started NAM, I had been at several different companies that were all focused on distribution across YouTube, which is a great platform. And until I start about the time I started NAM was the gold standard. If you had content and you wanted to find an audience, you would put it up on YouTube and that was sort of it. And I was at these companies that were what I would call single platform providers. They were only focused on YouTube. The problem with that is that they have no incentive to tell the client that the campaign is underperforming because their budget is tied to a single platform. So they're going to tell them, you know, it's it's performing to benchmark, everything's good, nobody's the wiser. And in reality, maybe it wasn't performing all that well. And there's I saw that there were all of these other platforms that were coming into the space that had video ad units. There was Facebook had just launched their video ad unit. Twitter had a video ad unit. And I didn't feel like YouTube was always the appropriate place to be distributing media for those brands. That was the first thing. So they didn't, there was no, they weren't subjective and they didn't have the ability to be subjective. And that started to weigh on me personally. And the other thing that I saw was a huge hole is that nobody was using data. These campaigns were running, they were turned on, they were turned off, here's the report, and then that was sort of it. All of the insight and the learning that could have been gathered from those campaigns just sort of went off into the abyss. It wasn't being re-leveraged for future campaigns with that client or anything. And I wanted to solve for that and create a way for advertisers to not only streamline what they were doing with video, regardless of where they were running, but also use data to inform decisions that they were making on each one of these platforms, which when you're running in one, or even if you're working with several companies that are working within one platform, you know, there was the age of the the Facebook PMD where you're working within Facebook, and then you have a YouTube provider that you're working through with YouTube, those platforms don't speak to each other. So unless you're running the media from a single location, you can't really be insightful about how you're distributing that content. So that was really the impetus for starting the company. So it sounds like you wanted to have more of a platform agnostic approach and realizing that newer distribution outlets and social sites had chances for brands to reach audience that sometimes were a better fit for them, right? That Mm -hmm. YouTube isn't necessarily the right audience, the right context for some brands to be advertising. And so now you're taking data and leveraging a video buy across multiple platforms and trying to improve efficiency of those buys and performance of those buys. So what are some of the things that are different between the platforms? What are the things that you optimize for in a campaign? Well, we're always optimizing towards a KPI because usually when we're working with brands, their campaigns are really integrated, but they have a common goal. So they have an audience and they have something that they're trying to accomplish. Like in the case of a DR client, you know, they're trying to sell a product, whether it's or sell something, whether it's a free game download or it is a tangible product that you have to purchase from a purchase page. So regardless of where they're running media, whether they're doing display or they're doing social across YouTube and Facebook and several other social platforms, they're still trying to sell product. So we build strategies and run media and create target audience around optimizing against that KPI. So the great thing about running 
And this is true for testing. We do a lot of testing. But the great thing about running against several platforms from one place is that we can be really nimble. And if we know our KPI is to make a conversion and we're running on YouTube and Facebook and Facebook is converting at a much higher level, then we can immediately reallocate the YouTube media to Facebook to make that buy efficient against that keep the performance against that KPI. What are some of the new platforms that you're keeping an eye on from a video standpoint? Well, I mean, we're always looking at new platforms because the more streamlined we can make the video space, the better. We've been toying with SoundCloud and Musical.ly, obviously, although I think that those are a little bit further out just because in order for us to integrate, there needs to be some sort of video ad unit and a video ad API to make it really seamless. We can do a lot of that manually, but it's not ideal. The most recent one is obviously Snapchat. Everybody's talking about Snapchat. We'll see. I have mixed feelings personally about Snapchat, although I think some of their products are exciting. I wouldn't recommend anybody run out and buy their stock right now, but I do think that they're doing some interesting things with their ad platform and everybody is in the process of sort of testing it and seeing if it makes sense for them. So we'll see what happens, but I'm most excited to see what happens with Snapchat. What about Pinterest? Pinterest. I like Pinterest personally. I think it is a great platform for display For video, I think that they have a ways to go. And it's just, I don't know if they'll ever be a great platform for video to be candid just because it's the nature of how people consume content on that platform. You know, it's very quick. You want to see images. You want to learn how to do something. You want to, it's it's a reference site, basically. So I don't know if you would ever be putting away a bunch of video content to reference because it would require the user to go back and watch, continue watching all of the video content. So I think it's just the nature of the platform, but we'll see. I could be wrong. Ask me again in six months. And what are the differences between most of the work, what you do, which is paid media versus, say, influencer marketing, other forms of organic or native advertising? Well, it's very different because... Influencer marketing is all centered around the influencer and their organic reach. We do supplement influencer content from time to time because they still, you know, when they're doing brand deals specifically or brand, any sort of like brand tied creative, they usually have guarantees tied to that. And so we can supplement those to make sure that they meet the guarantee. But it's so different because it's, I mean, you're working with that influencer and you're paying a premium to work with that influencer because they're organic built-in network. Yeah, they have a following and so you're syndicating to their... You're basically buying their following as opposed to buying media outside. But we work with influencer content a lot for that specific reason because the advertiser may want to reach that community, but they also want to expand outside, which is mutually beneficial because then you have a brand that's supplementing basically media for the influencer to help them raise you know, awareness for their community. So, What are some of the challenges that you see in the paid media world around video today? Well, I mean, the biggest one within MySpace specifically within social video platforms is that these platforms don't talk to each other. I mean, that's part of the value proposition that our company has is that we simulate the companies or the two platforms talking to each other, even though they don't technically speak to each other. You can't use Facebook data on YouTube and vice versa. And that's realistically barring some 
miracle is not going to happen. So that's the biggest issue. And that's why distribution across social, in my opinion, is so complicated because you're just trying to find creative ways and develop methodologies and science behind getting these platforms to speak to each other in an effective way. But outside of it, I mean, there's a slew of issues when we're talking about programmatic. It's such a saturated space and there's a lot of protection issues and safety issues. And I mean, those safety issues are even bleeding over into Google and YouTube. And so how are those things that you think about and and look to tackle or improve over the future history of NOM? Well, a big piece of what we do is data collection, as I was mentioning, and we have a proprietary DMP. So we're storing all of this information into our DMP and we focus a lot on safety. That's been an issue. Brand safety has been an issue in my career as long as I can remember. And it sort of comes and goes in waves and you'll see everybody talking about it in the press. And when it's in the press, everybody's up in arms and they're thinking about it. And then it sort of fizzles out. And I'd say every eight to 12 months, it pops up in the press again. And there's never really been a solution for it, which is always really surprising to me because if it continues to be an ongoing issue. Why isn't anybody really doing anything about it? So that is something that we think about all the time. And it's why we have chosen to do something about it. And we have this DMP and we're collecting data and we're controlling where our ads run and making sure that they're not only relevant to the audience, but they're safe and we're not running on anything objectionable. So, I mean, it's something that we're constantly thinking about. Yeah. So the most recent example, I suppose, of of these big brand safety catastrophes, you mentioned Google, is what a lot of people are calling the YouTube adpocalypse, where a lot of advertisers pulled their budgets because they were worried about their content running against uh, inappropriate videos, right? And so uh, it sounds like the way that you solve for that is using a DMP or a data management platform that ingests this information, either from first-party data that you're collecting from campaigns, or in other cases, people purchase that data from third parties, and then you use that data to improve the targeting of an ad buy, which Mm -hmm. thus often makes it perform better, but also can ensure that brand safety that uh, that the advertiser is looking for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it helps it perform a lot better. That's a part, I mean, it's not just that we're protecting the content and making sure the brand is safe when they're running on these platforms. But it also ensures that they're reaching the right audience. I was also told in my career, and I believed it until I started this company, that if you wanted to run on quality inventory, that you were going to pay a premium for it. But the reality is, is that's not true. If you can run in front of the right audience at scale, you're not only going to get better costs for the media, but you're going to see much higher performance. And so when we started thinking more about this and developing these this methodology and these algorithms to deliver against this, we saw the performance and the cost. I mean, the decreases and the increases go crazy. Now we haven't we increase the performance usually on our campaigns by 30% or more and decrease the cost by up to 50%. Wow. Which is, I mean, it's mind-blowing to me. Sure. Even to me. Do you think that brands and agencies are finally waking up to that fact? Because it seems like, you know, I come from this space as well. And yeah. historically, there was a lot of interest in the high-level metrics, right? It's what the is my reach going to be? I call them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. What is my reach going to be? What is my CPM or my CPV cost per view, which is the way that people are buying these ad impressions reviews? And so they're failing to think about 
really what matters at the end of the campaign, which is the results. And so yeah. the way you should buy is almost thinking about your effective CPM, your eCPM, or your effective CPV, or eCPV. And so that means how many of the people that you're actually trying to reach did you pay to reach? And how many of your impressions or views were actually off target and therefore wasted? So yeah. if you back into an effective CPM or CPV, then I'm sure a much more targeted buy not only performs better, but does have the lower costs that you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I think that we've both been in this space for a really long time. So I think that we are a little bit ahead of the rest of the industry and probably will continue to be. We try to, so we have vanity metrics. There's vanity metrics on every campaign. We're optimizing against them, but we always try to push our clients to look beyond these vanity actions into ancillary things. So we'll try to, to the extent that we can, connect to things that are more robust, like Google Analytics or Site Analytics. So we can not only optimize against things like click-through, which would be what I would consider to be a vanity metric, it's first action after the view, but to look at time spent on site because then we can really qualify that viewer. So not only did they watch the video, but they clicked through the video and then they spent a substantial amount of time on the website or whatever the destination the destination page may have been. So then we, we can really qualify that traffic. So we try to push people to look at those metrics, but you can only do so much. I think that's going to be, I mean, that's a slow progression in the space. So what recommendations do you have for advertisers who are maybe you know, trying out social video for the first time. Maybe they've done TV buying in the past. Or they've done other kind of online video or digital video buys, but really want to explore social video. I mean, my biggest, my first recommendation would be to test. A lot of times it's easier said than done because you need a lot of, not a lot, but you need more than one piece of creative to test. And it becomes like a budget restriction, budgetary restriction because it costs money to produce content. You need the content to test and distribute but testing is a huge piece of it. It allows you to really gain insights, especially if you're working with a new brand or you're just dipping your toe into video, having like short pieces of content, even if they're not, it's not the greatest content. You can find an audience for any piece of content. I will tell you that from experience. Content that I thought was the most vanilla thing I've ever seen, people loved. There's an audience for everything. So it doesn't need to be the best content. It just needs to be the best for, it needs to be good for your audience and test. So you can gather data and use that moving forward to accomplish whatever goal you're trying to accomplish. What does the future hold for not? Well, you're asking the creative side of the founding team. So I have big aspirations and then my co-founder, Brent, always tries to bring me back back down to earth. But something that I think about a lot is we, listen, we wanted to start with video because it is the most complicated to understand. And it's the most complicated to make successful and to perform well and to make efficient. Once you sort of like crack that and you can be the expert in video and create a platform that allows you to do that effectively, then it becomes a lot easier to layer all of these other things in. So this may seem, I mean, it seems obvious to me, maybe it's not obvious, but our goal is to really streamline this. It wouldn't be, it's not really streamlining the process if you're only working within video, obviously. So we want to integrate search and display into the platform and then later have plans to integrate connect. TV. So it really becomes like the mecca for doing your media distribution and truly streamlining it. 
while making sure that everything is safe and above board. And will that be more of a self-serve technology platform to do yeah. so? More it'll some managed service uh, components? Yeah, well. it'll be... Th- I mean, the goal is for it to be completely self-serve, although realistically in the market, we're working with large companies that don't want to do it themselves. So they're always going to be an element of managed service. And I mean, we've built this business on managed service. We really have, I mean, we have the best service team. We keep our clients because we take good care of them, which seems like something that's so natural to me. But I learned through building this company that it is hard to find a company that actually takes care of their customers, which is, I mean, it's bizarre to me, but it is what it is. I mean, you understand that you guys. We invest heavily in client success. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. There are certain people who don't value or, or put as much emphasis on that. And yeah. for us, it's always been kind of the bedrock of who we are. I think it's kind of baked into our cultural DNA that we want yeah. to make sure that people have a good experience. And we see ourselves in our case, not as just a technology provider, but a strategic partner. So we want to understand someone's business deeply and provide value in other ways, make sure that we're not just dropping off software, but teaching them how to use it and implement it in their business so that they're successful and fueling their future growth, but also sharing industry expertise and insights and connecting them with people who can add value to their business. So we try to do yeah. as much of that as I possible. I mean, you're running the business and it's the founder's personalities trickle down to everybody else in the business and you're a nurturer. And so you want to nurture the people that you're doing business with and help them be successful. When you have people that are running a business that have those qualities, it just, I mean, I think it happens intrinsically, right? What would you say is the hardest part about starting your own business? Starting your own business. (laughs) The first, I still to this day think about A, making the decision to, I had been in the space for so long, I could really do my job with my eyes closed and my hands tied behind my back. And to me, it seemed crazy to leave that, but also crazy to not leave that because I was so not challenged anymore in the industry and it was evolving and I wanted to continue to evolve with the industry. So that was crazy. And now when I talk to other people that are thinking about starting a company and they're afraid, I'm like, well, I mean, I was afraid too, it's a scary thing to leave and start your own business, but you just have to do it. And it's really surprising to me how when you leave and you start your own company, how many people want to help you. I mean, that was something that almost brought me to tears when I started the company and people started to catch wind that I had left. I had left the business that I was at and now I was starting my own thing. I just started getting phone calls, people to help me. And that really motivates you to push you forward and get past that fear. The first year was hard. It's always hard, but you just have to make it through the first year. And then it sort of feels like everything falls into place. But I still think about that first year and I'm like, I don't know how the hell I made it past the first 12 months. But if you do it, then it gets a lot easier. Well, and I think it's important to have that support network. And you mentioned having a strong co-founder, having a community of people that you'd work with throughout your career who were there to cheer you on and, and yeah. bring you business and work with, really closely with you, give you advice as you were kind of getting through. Definitely the first year is always the hardest part. I feel so fortunate to have a good co-founder. I mean, I've heard you also have an amazing co-founder. He's one of your best friends That's and right. somebody that I absolutely adore also. Hello, Thomas. And I just feel so fortunate to have found somebody that I respect and is trustworthy 
and compliments. We compliment each other so well. I cannot tell you how many horror stories I've heard of people just, you know, getting into bed with the wrong co-founder and it ending terribly. I mean, it can be the demise of a business. Oh, yeah. I am a firm believer in companies are successful because of the founding team. And it's easy to get it wrong. Yeah. No, the company is only as strong as the company that you keep. Yeah, that's true. What advice do you have for other young entrepreneurs? Well, my one, and I think this is easy. This is probably going to be a boring answer, but it really does ring true and it will continue to ring true. And I tell people this every time. I still tell my team this to this day when they are hitting roadblocks and they can't get things done, but it's to be relentless. I guarantee you, anybody, if you are trying to get something done, whether it's starting a company or hiring somebody or just trying to accomplish something in your, if you're working at a corporation and you're trying to accomplish something that you know will make the business better, be relentless. You cannot take no for an answer. I mean, you don't want to be an asshole, obviously. Nobody likes an asshole, but there are ways to tactfully be relentless and make sure that if you know what's best for a business, whether it's your own or somebody else's, that you make sure it it happens. Yeah. I love that. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the social video space, what do you see coming? You're putting me on the spot. I need to give this some thought. I mean, the obvious answer is shoppable video. I feel like that's so boring. Anybody is going to tell you that. We're moving more into shoppable video. People respond to video more positively than they respond to any other form of media online. So that's the obvious next step. But to try to predict what would come after that, I don't know if I have an immediate answer for that. Things change and evolve so quickly. Live streaming, obviously. I'm really excited to see what happens with 360 content. There's a lot of like creative things that can be done with 360 content. It's something that we're thinking about from an advertising perspective. How do we integrate 360? How do we make 360 ad experiences that can maybe run in front of 360 content? So they're really, people are really getting a integrated experience when they're consuming content in a headset, for example. Was that three things? Yeah. What yeah, about VR? Go, do, you, do you think the same thing is going to become true of immersive video in, in the sense of VR and AR? I feel like VR is a buzzword right now. It's something that interests me personally from an advertising perspective. I don't know what's going to happen with it. It's really cool. I remember when VR and AR were being talked about years ago and they it sort of like came in. It was a buzzword for a minute and then it fizzled out and now it's like making its resurgence. So we'll see. What are some of your favorite books or any other resources? Favorite books? Yeah. Well, my all-time favorite book is a book that you made me read in our book club, From Good to Great. I love it so much just because I relate to it so much. Yeah. It's a classic. And thank you for the shout-out to my nerdy book club, which I actually miss dearly. I wish we still had a book club because it was so much fun. Well, now we're busy and we don't have time to read. (laughs) (laughs) That's the lie that we tell ourselves. (laughs) We don't make time to read. I know we don't make time to read, but I do love that book. I mean, that was, what was the last book that, oh yeah, I'm reading, I'm reading a book that's not business related. Some trashy uh, romance novels for the summer. No, it's a feminist book. It's a book about feminism. And if you were starting a business in the online video space today, meaning you had to start over completely from scratch, any ideas or inspirations of a, a new company you would want to pursue? Maybe something related to... I know that the next thing I really want to focus in 
on in the next chapter of my life, whenever that is, is mentorship, specifically in advertising and specific to women, because if there was something related to that that I experience in this space, it's that it's a very male-dominated field, and women don't always or hardly ever feel empowered to take on leadership roles in this industry. I have always been the only woman at the table, at the executive table, and it's heartbreaking to me. And I've actually had conversations with people that had potential to be, you know, at the table and have literally said to me that they didn't feel like they were good enough. And it's heartbreaking. So I really would want to focus in on something like that, maybe create a video network, like a peer-to-peer video network that would help these women that maybe are not in, you know, we're spoiled. We're living in Los Angeles. We're in a huge metropolitan city and probably New York. You know, there's a lot of resources here, but in every, in all other parts of the U.S. and even out of the country, they don't have resources like that that are empowering, you know, women in business. So probably something related to that. That's amazing. And where can people find out more about you and more about Nam? Well, you can find out more about Nam at thisisnam.co, C-O, that's not a typo. And you can find more about me on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter. It's just my name and I always respond and I like meeting people. So hit me up. Great. Well, this has been so fun for me. Great to hear even more great stories about your background and how, what inspired you to start this business and and how you pursued and were relentless in the face of everything. So thank you for sharing and uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show. Of course. I'm honored. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Bye.